Awesome. Let's go. Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kyle Rizal. It's Tuesday, the 30th of May today. And since it's a Tuesday, that means one topic for the whole, yeah, I don't know, 25 minutes, half an hour, 35 minutes, whatever, uh, that we're going to talk about today. We're talking meat today. Not uh, what you might have had on the grill, probably, almost certainly, uh, but meat, meat that is uh, cultivated, uh, cultured meat, uh, uh, meat grown in a lab in the vernacular, I suppose one could say. Yeah, the lab-grown meat phenomenon. And we know that this sounds like something out of a sci-fi novel, but there really are dozens of startups and billions of dollars going towards making beef, chicken, and fish in a lab. And the whole idea is to produce meat without killing animals, especially the cute ones, uh, while also reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So today, we're going to get into the rise of lab-grown meat and here to make us smart is Larissa Zimbaroff. She's a freelance journalist and author of the book Technically Food Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk about this. And first of all, there's over 100 startups making cultured meat today. Oh, wow. wow. So it's growing by the day, it seems. <laughs> um, yes. So then what exactly are you are we talking about when we do sort of break down which companies are into cultured meat? What is it and how is it made? So cultured meat, um, if, if I were to say to one of the startups that it wasn't actually meat, they would correct me and say, this is identical to meat. So they take meat cells from an animal, a chicken, for, for a chicken, they take an egg, egg cells. Uh, for a cow, they take beef cells. They take a, a, a biopsy and they get cells and then they grow them in the lab. They, to grow them in the lab, they need cultured media or serum um, that has growth hormones in it that it, just like our body needs food and micronutrients and macronutrients to grow, uh, hormones like insulin, an animal needs the same thing, and these cells are, since they're the same as an animal in the lab, they're going to need those, those, those ingredients to grow. Eventually, they might take it if they're making chicken, which may be the first thing we see to market. Chicken's going to be turned into a chicken nugget or maybe a chicken breast, something kind of easier than, um, say, a steak. Uh, and then it, they'll form it into that shape and sell it in the supermarket one day. What's the difference then between cultured or lab-grown? And is that pejorative, by the way, lab-grown? I personally don't think lab-grown is pejorative. Okay. I know that the industry is looking to call it cultivated. Okay. So right. it's it's been called a bunch of different things, Kai, so it's good that you point okay. this out. All right. okay. Some, sometimes they called it clean meat, which didn't get yeah, much no, traction because then we were calling other meat dirty. <laughs> yeah, no. Right. And, right. but lab grown or in vitro, no, that's a whole, Rejected. no, we're not doing Rejected. that. Okay. All right. Okay. So okay. I, I, okay. I will go with cultivated and, and I need for those who aren't clear as I wasn't really until I started thinking about this, the difference between cultivated meat and like the impossible burgers you can get in the store today. Night and day. So one is plant. So it's soy protein or potato or like the Beyond Meat Burger is pea protein. They're even using chickpea. So uh, those are plant-based and it's all plant-based ingredients. So coconut oil or pea or mm -hmm. potato, 
uh, binders, things you might find in other foods in the, in the supermarket today. Mm. And cultivated meat is, like I said, it's going to be cells from a cow that have been grown in the lab or in uh, production facilities in steel tanks called bioreactors. And you said that chicken was probably going to be the first to market, but how close are we? Like, when are we going to start seeing these things in our supermarkets? Great question. I think the supermarket, like tackling Safeway or Kroger's, depending on where you live, that's, I think, easily five to 10 years away. But Mm -hmm. the FDA has given it a green light. They've said it's safe to eat, Hmm. which is which means it's one step closer to actually being in a restaurant. Uh, So we still are waiting for the USDA to give its approval. But we may see it in fine dining establishments like uh, Atelier Cren, which is Dominique Cren's restaurant in San Francisco. Um, That's where we're going to see it first. It is for sale in in Singapore, if anybody wants to fly to Singapore, they can get a chicken satay or um, a chicken nugget. And that's from a company called Eat Just. Have you had it? I have. And? I, I've had pretty much everything. Um, <laughs> the, the chicken that I've had has the texture. Uh, the closest texture I've gotten so far is from Upside Foods, which is located in Emeryville, California, north in the Northern California and it it really had the texture, Kai and Kimberly. It's like you know, it has the the fibers uh-huh. and that kind of dense chew that your teeth are expecting. Huh. I I felt it missed a little bit of the flavor or maybe the fat, huh. but if you had it in something, you would never know. Wow. But that being said, like some of these plant proteins that I've had are just as you know compelling and and easy 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 to like forget that you're eating uh, plants right. versus meat. Right. Yeah, I'm thinking of all these things that we eat, especially like in fast food chains and stuff where it's like chunks of chicken or chicken in soup right. or chicken on salad or or heavily seasoned chicken in tacos and things like that. Like you probably really wouldn't notice. You would have no idea. I actually ate at a Mexican uh, restaurant in uh, Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley this weekend and everything was vegan. And I had a jackfruit burrito. I had you know, just in a carne asada taco, I never would have known that it was mm. vegan. Wow. Uh, can we talk scale here for a minute? Much like um, like renewable energy sources are going to have a scale challenge, um, I imagine this is going to have a scale challenge. And do you suppose that like in our lifetimes, let's pick yours because you're not as old as I am, um, we will see this on equal footing with with regular animal meat? I do not think we will see it on a regular footing huh. with animal meat. And I'm probably not as young as maybe you think I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. but, but I think- We just I say think, thank uh, you. Now, now I have, <laughs> to, go- now I have to Google. Thank you, thank you. Now you have to Google me. <laughs> That's right. Um, uh, I think Gen Z or Gen Alpha, the next generations, maybe- Wait, is that what they're calling are. it? Gen Alpha? I believe oh. so. Oh, I think yes, I hate that. Yes, that's right. <laughs> really? It is. it is Gen Alpha. Yes, oh, those are the babies. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, All right. Sorry. Anyway, question. go ahead. Sorry. Back to the question, which is, uh, <laughs> will we see this in in our lifetime get to the cost and scale that industrial meat has today? I mean, if we think how long that industry has had to get to where it is, to sow just dirt cheap, right? You know, you can get a pound of chicken for $6. We're not going to see that for decades um, because there's many things that this this industry has to solve for. They have to solve for this growth serum, right? With which is these like 
hormones and ingredients that are going to grow the cells. And, you know, initially this this industry has started with like pharma grade ingredients, which is super, super expensive. Right. I mean, we know we know what it costs to go to the drugstore, but they haven't quite made it to food grade. And food isn't it isn't a an industry that pays well, right? We don't pay our makers well. Mm-hmm. It's dirt cheap to buy food today. And that doesn't translate to, to you know, profits very quickly. Uh, also, the technology to make the cells, to grow the cells, to like, you know, there's lots of intricacy here. Essentially, they're, they're, they're using the same technology that we use to make vaccines. And no one's been doing this at food grade, at food scale. Mm-hmm. So all those things have to kind of, they have to move, they have to change, they have to innovate r- really quickly to get any, make any kind of dent in the like $300 trillion meat industry. Hmm. You know, what you're describing there, using pharmaceutical grade equipment to make a chicken nugget uh, and all of these baths of, of proteins and cultures and things like that, all of that is very energy intensive. And this whole cultivated meat idea was supposed to be a way to help address climate change. And uh, we saw this study from UC Davis that suggests it may even be more harmful to the environment to make meat this way than traditional meat production. How do we get to sustainability on this, or is it even going to be possible? Yeah, so that's this innovation that is needed, both in the the production facility, so the the bioreactors, the energy needed, because you know the energy usage is probably the highest hit that they have, that they will have. Uh, water usage may be a little bit, and then and then they need ingredients, crops, just like animals need to eat crops. These, this lab grown meat is going to need crops. So, but the but the biggest things that they're going to need to worry about to to make an impact on the climate, to help the climate, is getting people to eat their meat instead of industrial grade meat. They have to get the the cost down. To get the cost down, they need to innovate rapidly they need they've there's already three billion dollars invested in this industry they'd probably say they need i don't know 10 times that yeah uh so so this is one answer to the question i'm about to ask you is kai you need to get over yourself but the other is that it that it's a real challenge that they're thinking about and and the question is how do you get over the ick factor hmm (laughs) well I think I think food. Uh, Kim, wait, Kimberly, you were gonna you were gonna you were gonna like, tell me to get over myself. Factor? I, 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 I have, have I have factor. I have a tiny little bit of an ick factor. Yeah. Why? I don't know. I mean, do you know everything ick. that's actually in a chicken chicken nugget I, as is? I, I do, but I've but I've known that since I was old enough to figure out which end of the chicken to eat. Right? I mean, you know, I was I was a little kid, and 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 now it's from a lab. I mean, so is most of the stuff we eat. Anyway, Larissa, go ahead. Yeah, food science has been in our food, like has right. been, they've had their hands in our food since the 70s. Right. Uh, there is an ick factor, but people are so, uh, they're so separated from how their food is produced and created yeah. and grown and, and that people actually don't, that, I don't think it's the ick factor that makes them maybe not want to buy this in the future. It's going to be flavor, price, convenience that gets okay. people to buy it at the supermarket and I think that lab grown isn't going to be like on the label, right? It's going to say like, I don't know, made from cells, right? Um, you know, n- no animal, like there's a, there's whey protein you can buy in the supermarket today, Kai, that's called, that says it's made from non-animal whey protein. 
Wow. So it'll be something like that that's a little, uh, you know, obscured from like really understanding that it was grown in a lab. So, so the, the, so the answer really is kind of get over yourself. I, should, you know, <laughs> I, I gave you the answer in the first instance. All right, that's fine. That's, I'll take that. That's fine. It's funny because like having actually been in a situation where I have watched the chicken that I later ate uh-huh, be uh-huh, slaughtered uh-huh. in you front bet. of me, that has a much higher ick factor t- Oh, that's so interesting. We have varying ick factors. Sorry, I've, I've yeah. monopolized okay. that part of the conversation. Anyway. Um, you mentioned climate. Like, is is cultivated meat going to answer our climate woes? And and most of these startups are actually founded by, by vegans who don't eat meat. And, and they're, I would say their number one concern is animal welfare. And mm-hmm. this will absolutely get us to a different place, but people have to stop eating industrial meat to yeah. get us to that right. to that place. And, and that is another big hurdle. Right. Right. You mentioned the labeling thing, which opens up another big issue, which is the fight between this industry and the sort of industrial meat industry. I rem- I know that like there's issues they don't want, like sort of the industrial food sector doesn't want nut milks being called milk. They don't want, you know, the veggie burgers to be called burgers and things like that. How is that fight playing out in this sector? Other than this, like, it's going to be the word meat that is going to be an issue. I do think that because the nut milk people have been fighting the fight and like the tofurkey, you know, hot dog (laughs) people have been fighting the fight, that it, it may come that Industrial meat companies want to work a little bit closer with these startups. And evidence for that that I have is that they're investing in these companies. So they're not actually going to necessarily want to put a roadblock there in that labeling because they also want to like like JBS or Cargill, like they want to make money. So they're going to figure out how to like support it. And they're going to have to figure out how to support their ranchers who have been with them, you know, for for decades. Uh, so, so this is the tip of the iceberg, right? I mean, eventually, given how fast the you know population on the planet is growing and how quickly we're sucking up you know usable productive resources, we're going to be growing everything in a lab. Oh yeah, uh, I've I've written about lab grown chocolate. Uh, I've written about lab grown egg proteins, uh, milk proteins. What else? Coffee. People are making alternative coffee that's not made from coffee beans. Hmm. Honey. There's a there's a Bay Area company making honey, but not from bees. Wow. It's pretty. It's pretty. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Hmm. Speaking of oh my gosh, I saw a while back about the woolly mammoth meatball that some <laughs> uh, company did. I think it was like in Norway or something like that. Australia. But it, it does kind of – Australia, thank you. It does kind of open the door to some ethical questions of if you can create any kind of meat, are there any guardrails or any ethical discussions happening about what meats you can – well, not just can, but are – should, I guess, grow in a lab because, I mean, what happens when somebody says, I want some dolphin meat or some manatee meat or some human meat and you're not killing a creature or a person? Like, you know, I'm just thinking about these experimental restaurants and things like that that just like to make waves. Like, how do how are people talking about that stuff? I think it's a real good question to have because I I wrote a piece for Fast Company about these 
you know, what investors, how investors are taking our food system, where their money is sort of directing us. And these mammoth, these, these quote unquote mammoth meatballs that were made by Vox, a company in Australia, they, no one could eat it because we, we hadn't been, we haven't been eating mammoth and it wasn't actually hundred percent mammoth. It was like mammoth grown in sheep cells. So this mammoth meatball is actually in a museum which is kind of ridiculous, I think, and a waste of money, a waste of a lot of money, like kind of doing it for science, you know, kind of a science stunt, like, let's see if we can do this. But if we want to change that people are eating industrial meat, cheap meat that is harmful to the environment and harmful to, you know, kind of not harmful to animals, it's all harmful to animals. But if we want to change that system, making a mammoth meatball doesn't make make any sense. We need to be focusing on making it cheaper, making chicken and making it tasty and delicious. And that is going to be very hard. But, you know, you both mentioned this UC Davis study that talks about the cradle to gate life cycle assessment. Universities are getting in on it, this sector. They're, 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 they're researching it. They're trying to figure out what we can do and how we can do it. And this, this innovation that's coming is, is pretty fascinating and interesting. And Kai, there's a lot of ick and there's a lot yeah, of questions and there's a lot of maybes and I don't knows still. Right, right. All right, well, we'll leave it there. Uh, Larissa Zimbaroff. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good. Unless was totally, you have totally more. Interesting. No, it was totally interesting. Yeah. I just, it's, yeah, it's kind of wild. Yeah. It's kind of wild. All right. New, the First book is Technically off. Food Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. Thank you so much. Thank you. Totally it was great. <sighs> I, Would you eat like dinosaur meat if they could make it? I maybe I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, we'd love to know what you think about the rise of lab-grown meat or cultivated meat or um food and and in general. Why not? Let us know. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Or you can email us at makingsmart at marketplace.org. We will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine... I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. We are back. We shall do some news. Kimberly Adams, you go first. It is the news. They got a deal over the holiday weekend. Uh, I was surprised. I'm not going to lie. I, I was I was surprised that, and I'm still skeptical. Um, but I will say, after looking at what is in this deal, it doesn't actually change that much right. in practice. It seems um, there are definitely talking points for either side in terms of what they can say they won. 
But I do think that we can't forget that the Biden administration started out saying that they weren't going to negotiate this. And now they are. Or now they did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is now twice that Democrats have done this and Republicans have not in their administrations. And it's worth just saying that out loud and being aware of what that will mean for these debates in the future, because this deal pushes the next debt ceiling debate you know, need for an increase to January 2025, which means whoever wins the 2024 presidential election has this nice gift waiting for them as soon as they arrive in the Oval yep. Office, because they'll be probably smack dab in the middle of extraordinary measures yep. uh, trying to keep that going. And even though a lot of this deal keeps spending flat, and, and I want to get to sort of what it says about spending in a second, but if you think about inflation, it is effectively a cut. It is effectively an across-the-board spending cut if you keep things flat when you consider how much inflation we've had. And so that is, even if it's not being said out loud, a win for the GOP in that they they did get, get a cut. Now, the Biden administration will say that in their budget proposal, they'd pretty much wanted things to be flat or have relatively small increases in several of these categories. That would have effectively also been a cut with inflation. Now, the way the Biden administration is talking about this deal is that they didn't negotiate on the debt limit. They negotiated on the budget, which is what they would have done anyway. It just so happens that it's at the same time as they were negotiating yeah. the debt limit, whatever. What's interesting about this is because the way that we fund our government, we're talking about the budget for the upcoming fiscal year, right? And even if that budget passes, they still have to pass the appropriations to spend that money. And that is where a lot of these details are going to end up getting hashed out. And so even if this budget makes it through with the overall parameters that are laid out in this deal, I'll still be very interested to see what actually happens in the appropriations process. So mm-hmm. uh, that's my take on this. No, that's really good. And it's good. Uh, it's good. Um, um, uh, and I say this truly non-pejoratively. Uh, it's good inside the Beltway perspective on, on what's going to happen. Uh, mine That's is why re- I'm here. Yeah, mine is mine is related, but uh, a little bit more historical. And I just want to remind everybody, as as Kimberly pointed out, uh, we still don't actually have a vote on this thing. It has not been approved. There's lots that has to happen. The Freedom Caucus in the House is making all kinds of noise today, Tuesday, that they're going to vote it down. I think the count on people who've said no is like 18 now on the GOP side in the House. So they're obviously going to need some Democratic votes, and they'll probably get some. But whether it's enough is a whole other question. I do just want to remind everybody that on the 29th of September 2008, the House of Representatives voted down the tarp in the middle of the financial crisis. The House of Representatives said, no, thank you. We are not going to spend $700 billion to save the banking system and the financial sector. Promptly, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 777.68 points, right? It's about a 7% drop. Today, that would be about 25, 2,600 points on the Dow. And it then took them four days to go back and get a final bill passed by both the House and the Senate. I would just like to point out that we don't really have four days. Mm -hmm. Technically, do we have four days? Yes. Legislatively, we don't have four days. And so the margin of error here is still very, very, very narrow. The, the markets today are not freaking out. They think it's going to get done. 
God bless him. I hope so. Mm-hmm. But um, I never. Uh, I'm I'm on the record in my in my disdain for the Congress of the United States being able to do things. And and I I I the proof is in the pudding. If they get it done, great. If not, you know, also not great. Yeah. Um, they really do not have a margin no. of error at all no. here. And, you know, the Freedom Caucus is is one part of it, but uh, there are a lot of Democrats that are mm-hmm. pretty oh, upset yeah, about this. For I mean, sure. they're, run- they're running into problems getting this thing out of committee, yep. Yep. <laughs> you know? Yep. Um, yeah, yeah, I totally. have many thoughts. I'm sure we'll be watching this play out over the next couple of days. We will, so. we will. Okie dokie, that's it for the news fix. Let's do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. We talked the other day about uh, retailers not offering uh, free returns anymore or making it tougher to return things. And uh, here is what we got in response. Hi, this is Robin calling for San Clemente. I just wanted to point out that the retailers can't have it both ways. They can't close down all of their stores so that it's impossible to try anything on and mm-hmm. look at it mm-hmm. and then resent the fact that we want to bring items home and try them on in our own homes. If they're going to shut down returns, which I guess I understand and respect, then they need not close as many brick-and-mortar stores. So that's my thought. Thanks for making me smart. Bye. Totally fair. Totally fair. Totally fair. Absolutely. Yeah. But um, <laughs> fairness doesn't necessarily motivate capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. All right. Uh, as we do on this podcast, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is something, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? Antonio Barreras has come to the end of his internship with us, and, and thus he gets the answer to the Make Me Smart question today. Here you go. Something I thought I knew but later found out I was wrong about was how to be creative. Growing up, I always thought that the only way to express my creativity was through the arts, through performing. Hmm. But as time has gone by, I've realized that there can be creativity in everything that I do. From the way I tell those closest to me that I love them, to which streets Hmm. I explore when going on walks, creativity can be anything that I want it to be. Finding how to be creative in those little things Those mundane tasks has really changed my perspective and allowed me to create joy in all corners of my life. I like that. That's nice. I do, too. That's such a good point. I've spent my uh, whole life saying I'm not that creative because I can't, like, draw or sing Mm. or, like, play a musical instrument. But, yeah, that's a a really good point. That's a great perspective, Antonio. Good job. all right. What is something that you've been wrong about, like me, about creativity or anything else? Leave us a voice message with your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Our number, again, is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Today's episode of Make Me Smart was produced by our intern, Antonio Barreras, with some help from Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's program is engineered by Charlton Thorpe. Mishin Tiguan is going to mix it down later. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcast. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. Did you do any growing this weekend? Uh, no. 
No, actually, no grilling this weekend, meats or otherwise. Me either. Huh. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine... I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.